there and welcome to another Sports Pro podcast. My name is George Breer. I'm the Senior Content Manager here at Sports Pro. And after a brief week-long absence, I'm back in your hosting chair for this week. But alongside me is a regular face, one who has been holding the fort admirably in my absence. It's our news editor, Tom Basson. Tom, how are you today? I am very well, George. I hope you're coming back well energised for a Sports Pro pod for the ages. It's the only thing really that kept me going through my holiday was just the knowledge that I could step back behind the mic on my first day back. All of that gold from the Isle of Wight and all you're really thinking about is, oh, what am I going to say on the pod next week? Exactly. It's amazing that I managed to spend a week of my holiday playing golf as much as I could. And I think my golf game is in a significantly worse place than it, it was when I first started. But I'm hoping that's just the nature of the game. Always, always the nature of the game. Did you, uh, did you catch any of the coronation this weekend, Tom? Um, of course, the the big news on the UK shores this weekend. I think we, I think we collectively as a household tuned in for about fifteen minutes. Um, I saw some good, yeah. t- I saw some good jokes on Twitter, and that was really about it. I don't think any of the jokes on Twitter I can repeat on here. So maybe, maybe best to move on from the coronation chat. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think beyond the memes, very little impact mm. on my weekend. But in terms of of coverage, Tom, one thing that we'll be receiving a lot more coverage in the coming years is the EFL. Should we talk about the recent uh, broadcast deal that's been announced? Let's go for it. Fantastic. So for someone who's been away and out of the sports biz headlines for the last 10 days or so, give me a rundown of what's happened. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, the EFL announced that it was basically set to go with Sky. It was going to put the deal that it agreed with Sky to its clubs. And then on Friday... The AFL announced the the deal that it had agreed, which um, is is actually pretty bumper. Really helpfully from the AFL, they announced this at half past six on a Friday evening on the weekend of the coronation. So um, it perhaps didn't quite get the coverage that it would have gathered had it been announced at a more reasonable reporting time. Do you think that was on purpose? I don't know. It's not like they're burying bad news. I mean, if you look at the top line figures for this, it's uh, it's pretty pretty good. Nine hundred thirty five million over five years. That's a uh, 50% increase on the current rights fee. Sky have also going to commit, I think it's like 40 million to marketing spend of that of that product as well. And there's going to be a lot more games broadcast. I think the total figure was 1,059 per season, which is absolutely mad when you think about it. But that is for the championship, League One, League Two. So that's the second, third and fourth tiers of English football the EFL Cup and the EFL Trophy, which is the tournament, the knockout cup competition competed by the teams in the bottom two tiers. There will be 328 live Sky Championship games, 248 League One games, 248 League Two games, all 15 playoff matches, 93 Carabao Cup matches, and 127 EFL Trophy matches. We can get into the breakdowns of where all those increases have come, but that is the sort of the nuts and bolts of it. I guess the other element of this is it kicks in from 24-25 and at that point the EFL iFollow service will basically stop because in that increased number of games is all of the midweek matches across all EFL and pretty much those are the things that make up the EFL iFollow product anyway so there's no need for that anymore. All these games are going to be broadcast on Sky's linear networks or via what is described in the press release as a Sky Sports streaming destination on TV and mobile. So a lot going on there. Not all of the details kind of completely confirmed yet, specifically that Sky Sports streaming destination. 
and what that's going to look like. But a very big deal for the EFL. I think they're pretty happy with it. I also think Sky are probably quite happy with it as well. Yeah, there's a huge amount to unpick there. As you said, the, the headlines on the face of it, I, when I first saw the news, it, it, it almost looked like business as usual, staying with the same pay TV broadcaster that the EFL is currently under. But I think when you dig a little bit underneath those headline figures, it's a pretty substantial change that we're seeing. First up being the number of matches that are being broadcast. It's more than four times the number of games across the EFL that are going to be broadcast live, but only a 50% increase in the current rights value. We've talked on this podcast quite a bit before around the 3pm blackout and the opportunity to remove the 3pm blackout, which was very much on the table as part of this right cycle. So were you surprised by the sheer number of games that have been added to the broadcast schedule and how that's translated into the overall financial figures. I'm not surprised by the total amount that's been added, like if they're going to get rid of iFollow. In terms of like the games on the weekend, there's going to be five championship games per weekend and then five from League One and League Two. The splits for those haven't been confirmed yet. So that's the sort of real big increase because there's currently, I think it's like two championship games a weekend broadcast. And then you get 16 League One or League Two games for the whole season. So it's a lot more exposure for the clubs, essentially and leaves a lot less to go on to iFollow. On the blackout, am I surprised they've done this with Sky? Probably not. Sky probably quite like the blackout. It works for them. It works for their current business model with the other properties that they've got, namely the Premier League, also the popular Soccer Saturday show. They'll still have reporters at every single game for that. And like really, what the EFL said on the blackout, or Article 48, as they like to refer to it, is that they anticipated by sort of getting rid of Article 48, they'd lose 37 million in attendance. And not really said how that's been calculated, but that's their estimate. They'd have lost 37 million in attendance and the offers that they got from the other broadcasters, one didn't match Sky's fees and two didn't meet the deficit from getting rid of the blackout window. So uh, I'm not surprised at all that it remains in place given that the deal is with Sky. If it had changed hands, then maybe, but uh, the fact that they stayed with the same broadcaster probably explains why the sort of existing model stayed in place yeah so they said that there's 832 protected games within that 3pm blackout window the rest obviously now being broadcast do you think this is a testing of the waters from both you know a major pay tv broadcaster like sky and the efl to see you know if we increase the number of games if we open the floodgates really which is what they have done with a four times increase in the number of games being broadcast just to see what the impact is on attendances to see what the potential ramifications could be of ending the blackout i think that sort of 800 odd figure is a bit of a misnomer because what the current deal doesn't include is all the numbers of games that you're able to broadcast via i follow so in total, it's around 600 league games that are not going to be aired, based on my calculations for a bit. What the EFL said about attendances is that they're sort of pretty bullish about where they're at anyway. They're up 12% this season. I think they're going to get 20 million fans across the whole campaign. So it could be. I don't think there really is much material impact on the on the games that they've left behind the blackout because those are the ones that people want to attend anyway. They're Saturday games. Fans of those clubs are generally going to want to attend on a Saturday, that's the sort of optimum time. So it's really the games that are like midweek, far away, just for away fans across the country that are the slightly less desirable ones. And they're now not on iFollow, but on Sky. So they're the the sort of major change, I think, for in that regard. I don't think it, there, there is really going to be much of a material impact on the attendances. You might see it with the additional games that are being broadcast. But as I said, I think like the fans that still want to go on a Saturday are still going to want to go on a Saturday regardless. 
because I mean, really, it's, it's it's up to the clubs then to make it a better fan experience on the day. An interesting layer to to this is the impact of iFollow and the phasing out of iFollow and club streaming services, which they've referred to quite a few times in comms that have gone out. Now, Tom, for someone whose attention might be more trained towards the Premier League, like myself, and who isn't as au fait with the with the lower leagues of football, can you tell me what iFollow is and how it operates? Yeah, sorry, I should have probably explained this right at the top. iFollow currently really serves to broadcast games for teams in League One and League Two. I think at Championship clubs, there's a handful of games that fall outside the Sky Deal, but there's not that many. Fans can pay a tenner to watch a game. And essentially, those are generally all midweek games. So it doesn't currently work on Saturdays or on games that would be covered by the 3pm blackout window anyway, or that are broadcast on Sky. So if a League One game is on Sky, it's not on iFollow. And if it's at Saturday at three o'clock, then it's not on iFollow. If it's midweek, then it is on iFollow. And basically, there's a sort of 600-ish games that are currently available on iFollow for fans of those teams to buy. The way that the revenue works from that is that the club selling the iFollow package gets... 80% of the revenue for the game and there's a 20% service fee which goes to EFL to pay off the different parts of the chain which deliver that product. One of the criticisms of iFollow has been the sort of the, the way that that revenue is distributed and doesn't really take into the fact that you might have a big club, let's say Ipswich, playing against a small club, let's say Accrington Stanley. The total number of passes sold for that game, like iFollow passes, might be 6,000 if it's away at Accrington, but given that the, the home team are much smaller and going to probably contribute way less towards the total viewership, there's no sort of split between the two clubs playing in the game. What the iFollow deal doesn't do is it doesn't really kind of represent the fact that you've got two teams taking part in something. It pays one team for playing against another, essentially. And so it's just the home team that receives the revenue from the iFollow? No, no, it's the t- it's just the team that sells the pass. So uh, Ipswich, could be, Ipswich could be playing Accrington. All the passes could be sold by Ipswich and Accrington doesn't see any of that money, despite the fact that they've got 6,000 people tuning into the game, which they're playing in. They don't get any cut of that if it's not sold by them. And so both teams are able to sell those passes ahead of a game? Both teams are able to sell those passes, yes. Interesting. So under the new agreement, that is essentially replaced by a more equitable share of the funding across the broadcast cycle. So there'd be a nigh on equal share of that central broadcast pot. Obviously, that will be dependent on who's being televised and when. But essentially, it takes away the variability and the risk that comes with iFollow, which is dependent on essentially customer acquisition per game and is fixed. Yes, it essentially replaces that model completely. And it kind of ends EFL's attempts to do D2C, really. Like, yeah. It's very much going back to the kind of more traditional B2B model and waving the white flag when it comes to direct-to-consumer sales. I don't know what the sort of plans for it are overseas because that's actually a fairly big driver of revenue for, for iFollow. Overseas, fans can actually buy any game that they want, obviously, because it's outside of the UK market. That's actually a, a generally a bigger revenue driver for iFollow. So I think... Spread somewhere that Bolton last year, when they're in League Two, generated about half a million pounds in iFollow revenue, and sixty percent of that was from overseas buyers. You think you think clubs like Wrexham as well entering the football league after their hiatus will certainly want the option of of that international audience base to be monetized? Yeah, absolutely. I think for them it could this could be this could prove to be very valuable with their sort of overseas fan base, but on the domestic side, that's going. What do you think the reception is from the clubs of this deal? Obviously, the bumper figures will be welcomed. But when we're talking about replacing the iFollow platform and 
as I've already said, that more equal distribution of rights and that guaranteed revenue. What do you think the reception of that's going to be? They all voted on this and it got a unanimous approval from the clubs. There's always going to be some clubs that do better out of this than others. I mean, the championship clubs are going to probably earn more money out of this new deal than they did under the old one. I didn't quite understand this in the EFL's explainer, but essentially it said that the splits are going to change. Essentially it said that the revenue distribution will see some clubs make more based on where they are in the league. So championship clubs, approximately 46% more revenue. League one and league two, they're going to be 25% more from, from this. I don't know quite where that stands against iFollow revenue, but that's just based on the broadcast income alone. So from that basis, they'll probably be quite happy. Also, the fact those League One and League Two clubs are going to be on TV more is probably very good for them too. That is more exposure that provides, and sort of the EFL indicated in this kind of big statement that it made that that's what one of the things that the clubs wanted. Possibility of extra eyeballs coming in on them. It just means that they are, they're just seen. You see more of a club like, let's say Crawley, or you see more of a club like Northampton, whereas currently they're, yeah, 16 games a season in League 1 and League 2. So, yeah, just a lot more eyeballs potentially on the lower tiers of the EFL, which um, probably benefits them too. I wanted to go back to the to the revenue distribution model in a moment. But before we do, there was the slightly vaguely worded indication of the replacement of iFollow, which was a Sky Sports streaming destination available on TV and mobile devices. Now, that strikes me as an alternative to SkyGo, Sky's current OTT platform. Do you think we're going to see the launch of a new OTT platform from Sky that is either more heavily dedicated to the EFL or is a departure from what they currently have in place? I think there will have to be something that's a little bit different, but what I think they probably will do, and like this is what uh, I'm just completely guessing here, I've got no inside information whatsoever, but I think what they will do is just beef up the existing Sky Sports app. Currently on the Sky Sports app on your phone, you can stream live games if you've got a subscription, either via Sky or via Virgin or via Now TV. So they currently have that option. I think what they'll probably do is just build that out a bit more into maybe into Sky Q, into Sky Glass, onto smart TVs, make it a bit more of an expansive offering on their phone that's generally the trend we've seen with d2z and with sports properties is that rather than trying to have let's say like here's our tv product and here's our general sports product they're now bringing those things all into one place we saw it with the nba we've seen it with sort of the nfl with their nfl plus product as well so there's that kind of digital consolidation around which which now broadcast can be bought into for, for Sky. So I I think that's where they'll go with it. I don't know for sure, but that would be that would be my guess. And that that would be an exciting development for Sky as a business. I think it is a, a quite a clear separation. I think between the broadcast platform and the SkyGo platform, there have been some challenges with the latter. It would be an interesting and probably a welcome development from many customers to see that level of sort of digital agility when it comes to how they deliver those games. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to have to be part of this. Like, I don't think they can just do the same thing that they've been doing, like retrofit the model onto this agreement. Like if you're broadcasting that many games, they haven't got that many TV channels. So they're going to have to find a way to do this within their kind of current suite of digital products. And that to me makes the most sense. I mean, interesting, like you can currently use the Sky website to essentially stream stuff too. I do it as part of like your Sky Sports subscription, like it, it just launches a separate Sky Sports desktop product, which works. It's not perfect, but and that would probably need to be kind of adapted to give you the option to pick any game you want, essentially. I don't know how, like, that's the other thing I think is going to be really interesting is how they're going to 
authenticate and kind of figure out like the, the data behind the games as well. So like if you're picking a stream with your favorite team on it, I'm guessing they're going to have to create a kind of personalized account process for this where it recommends you that. Or are you just going to have to log in and you get presented with a sort of capsule sky product where you can pick your match, but it's not really tailored to you. I can't see that being something that is particularly uh, fit for 2024, 2025. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how they deliver this agreement. And it'll be an interesting evolution to the way the platform works. Tom, I wanted to return back to the revenue distribution of that broadcast income. As you say, it is a little bit tricky to follow some of the logic in the EFL's explainer and to follow the maths a bit, but that's probably my shortcomings as much as anything else. But the current agreement has um, effectively the share split between the three divisions of the Championship, League 1 and League 2, is a 70%, 18%, and 12%. But that is being remodeled under the incoming agreement to be 80% towards the Championship, 12% towards League One and 8% towards League Two, which they've argued is a reflection of championship clubs being the primary driver of rights values. What were your thoughts on that? Well, this is the thing I didn't quite understand. So it says, according to the existing distribution formula, clubs in the championship will be approximately 46% better off and League One and Two clubs can be 25% better off. But if you do the breakdown on that new distribution split and you take in the uptick in the annual rights fee, it doesn't come out like that. It actually comes out with some very different numbers. And look, I, I can't claim to be privy to the inner workings of the EFL distribution model and all of the revenue that's going into it to achieve that. But like, if you just take those 80, 12, 8 splits and you apply it to the, the uplifted annual rights fee, which is going to be 179 million, League One and League Two clubs are going to get basically the same amount of money. 8% of 179 million is 14.3 million and 12% of uh, 119 million, which is the current annual rights fee, is 14.2 million. If you take that down to League One, 12% of 179 million is 21.4 million and 18% of 119 million is 21.4 million. When it gets to the championship, they currently get 70% of 119 million, which is 80.3 million, and they will now get... 80% of 179 million, which is 143 million. So there's a massive increase for the championship and not very much increase for League One and League Two, which is where I don't really understand where this 46% better off for the championship, 25% for the League One and League Two comes into it. The maths don't work for me, but there's probably things that I'm missing here. But on a sort of crude unpicking of the numbers, the sums don't quite add up. So I'd probably need to hear from the EFL how they reach that figure. Yeah. Do you think there's any scope there that those calculations are made beyond just the raw distribution numbers and that actually it comes down to, I know they've talked about this 40 million additional marketing spend that goes into the promotion of the leagues into the cups and of the community efforts from the clubs. Do you think that they have attributed essentially an uptick in revenue on the back of the exposure of these clubs, you know, i.e. sponsorship revenue alongside the benefits of that marketing effort within those figures? I don't think I can speculate as to what that is. I, I genuinely don't. I don't think they could calculate that because they'd have to know every single club's sponsorship deals to work out like why they all think they're going to be 25% better off. I guess maybe there's some things that I'm overlooking in this. So there could be more broadcast income attributed to the EFL trophy. I mean, there's there's a massive uptick in the number of games that's being showed from the EFL trophy or the, I think it's currently the Johnstone's Paint Cup or maybe the Papa John's trophy. I, I lose track of the title sponsor of that one, to be honest. Yeah, the Tim Pot Cup, as my old man used to call it. That's going up from, I think, what was previously 
literally the semi-finals and finals of the EFL trophy were broadcast under the last, under the last deal. And now that's going to be all 127 games. Similarly with the Carabao Cup, that was sort of one or two matches around and the semi-finals and finals, probably the quarterfinals as well. Uh, and now that's going to be all 93 Carabao Cup matches. And actually the Carabao Cup is always look, overlooked in this deal as like what is a massive driver of revenue because it's one of the only times that the EFL gets to generate money from Premier League clubs taking part in this competition. So when it comes to the sort of the weighting that Sky might put behind the, the deal, they will look at that and go like, okay, we're going to potentially be able to show a lot more Premier League clubs a lot, a lot more times per season as part of this new contract. So that's some value in there for them. So when it comes to that, Revenue distribution, those revenue distribution numbers that I think for me, there's probably like um, my understanding of it. There's just too many variables for me to kind of say where I think that's coming from and how I think they've calculated it. But the numbers based on the, the league games themselves don't quite add up for me, but that, that could just be me. Before we move on, I did want to ask you about the the references to Article 48 throughout the document and that 37 million figure that you referenced, which is what they estimate being the impact of removing the 3pm blackout in terms of attendance revenue. Do you see this deal affecting attendance across the EFL? Really simple. No, I don't at all. Yes, there'll be more games broadcast on the weekends, but given generally the trends in, in English football right now, which is more people attending more games across the board, that's not just in England either, it's in um, even down into the sort of the semi-pro tiers in Scotland, I don't see that happening. I think where football is at in this country generally and after the pandemic, people are just a lot more inclined to go to live games and clubs are doing a slightly better job, I think, of making that experience better for fans. I don't think it's perfect. and I think that especially in the EFL, there's a long way to go in terms of that. But I think they've realised that you've got to offer a little bit more when it comes to a live game experience because if you don't, people will go elsewhere. And I think we're seeing that fans now sort of treated slightly better by clubs when they go there. Ticket prices are a bit more reasonable across the board. We're not sort of seeing the kind of odd hikes and weird pricing that was disjointed across the across the leagues. So I don't think it's going to impact that whatsoever. I will be interested to see how this Article 48 conversation changes across the length of the deal because by the time this comes up again, it's going to be, what, like 2030? And by that point, you'd think that it makes less and less sense for there to be this weird block of... Weird, pin, weird window of time where you're not allowed to show any football because it might stop people going to games. The final thing I, I wanted to ask you about, Tom, before we move on, is we've talked on this podcast a lot before about parachute payments from the Premier League to the EFL and how essentially that creates a bit of a, a cliff edge in terms of those that have been in the Premier League and those that are more established championship clubs and how difficult it has become to bridge that financial divide and the various perils of doing of trying to do so the increase in these broadcast revenues and the increased revenue of the clubs therefore do you think this helps to bridge that gap somewhat particularly amidst discussions of reducing parachute payments going forward I mean, the, the broadcast revenues are, are so di- like so vastly different from... I mean, let's just take the championship to the Premier League, right? Like, by getting to the Premier League, you, you earn like 100-odd million. I think it's 114 currently, uh, off the top of my head, just from being in the Premier League, based on the fact that that's the amount of games you're going to be broadcasted on in that season before even any kind of consideration is taken into your league position or how many times you're actually on TV. When you think that the whole value of this is still going to be less than 200 million a season for the whole of the EFL. So that's 72 clubs. 
I don't know if it does anything really. It helps for sure. Like it's not unhelpful, but the Premier League still dwarfs the, the FL, rightly so, given that it's a high standard of football, higher tier, etc. But broadcast revenues are the kind of not the most important thing, I think, for championship clubs. Like for championship clubs, it is about attendances. As long as they protect those, that's what's really going to do it. And then I think the, the, the real bridging of the gap is going to have to come in this kind of new deal for football and the, the, inf- the impact of the English football regulator that's currently under planning. Uh, and yeah, the reduction of the parachute payments or the, the sort of realignment of that, it will probably have a greater impact than this than this TV rights deal. It's not going to hurt, but it's also it's a bit of a drop in the ocean when it comes to actually being a bridge of a gap. The EFL said in, in the sort of announcement for this that they remain committed to discussions to, on how it comes to narrowing the gap. And this, I think it basically provides a bit of scope to kind of keep those talks with the Premier League ongoing and, and allows the EFL to align itself with the Premier League in the future. But I think that is really where the bridging of that gap is going to happen because um, the chasm between the two in terms of broadcast revenues is only going to continue to grow with the next domestic deal, which is being worked on in the background. There's going to be a lot more. When's that up for? I think we're in the second second season of the three now. So it comes to the end of the end of next season, which is 23-24. So you'll have a new deal for then. And you've got to think about all of the players that are kind of coming into the uh, into the broadcast market in the UK now. You've got Warner Brothers Discovery, you've got Sky, you've got Amazon, you've got Apple, who are suddenly interested in all, in all of this stuff. It, you've even got sort of the likes of Viaplay too, who have sort of made a mini entrance into the market. So there's, there's just going to be a lot more competition for those rights, and that's only going to drive up the fee and therefore create a bigger gap with the, uh, with the, with the EFL. I think probably by the end of that Premier League rights tender, we're going to have a bigger gap than we do now between the two. Interesting. Well, Tom, thanks. Thank you for your time. Um, running running through the deal in great detail. It's been a, a helpful learning experience for me, and I hope it has been for, for others listening in. Now, Tom, before I leave you to the rest of your working day, I thought we'd bring back a segment that um, we haven't seen for a while on this podcast, which is our Under the Radar story, where Tom and I look at stories that we think have escaped the glare of mainstream attention over the past week or so. So, Tom, did you have a, a particular story in mind? As ever, I think the caveat when we do these under the radar stories is that they're they're never really that under the radar. They're just sort of things that maybe we've missed off the schedule for this show. But for me, it's the, it's the Newcastle. Uh, There's a report last week about Newcastle. Uh, it's something we've talked about before, but they're essentially being linked with a um, a Middle Eastern sponsor next season, which is going to uh, massively see their um, revenue from the main shirt sponsorship grow. The time to reporting a twenty five million pound a year deal. The brand involved apparently not owned by the PIF, which is probably the only surprise by this, but the Middle Eastern element of it is uh, is certainly not a shock to anyone that's been following this, given Newcastle's ownership and the Saudis' moves to grow the brand in this uh, in this area. I think I saw MR, a real estate company that's been sort of most strongly linked with this, although no one's actually put a, a name forward in print as yet as to who this might be. Newcastle are going to go from earning about £6.5 million a year from their uh, shirt sponsorship to 25, which is obviously a, a massive, massive growth in that area and will help fund probably a Champions League push and a league title push in the next few years. I know you um, you took offence just now, or you took aim at the title of Under the Radar for this segment, but that is a bit of a story that has been rumbling under the radar for some time, given the backdrop against the Premier League's decision to, or the club's decision to essentially say that 
companies that are owned under the same ownership structure as the club itself can't be reflected in front of shirt sponsorships, which has always been a bit of a challenge given the public investment fund's significant business interests across the Middle East. So are you surprised to still see the figure being quoted given that rule being implemented? Given that the, the report suggests, and I'm guessing this is being briefed by someone with a vested interest, but given that the, it's, it's been briefed that this is not a company in which the, the PIF has a has an interest, then it will probably fly through any kind of checks that the league needs to do on it. I think it's any deals over a million, the Premier League has to kind of do, do a double check on. But given this is the same Premier League that decided that the, the PIF was nothing to do with the Saudi state, I imagine Newcastle will probably be fine. It's always going to be a bit messy. Like one of the kind of messy things about Manchester City and all of their sponsorships is the is the influence of the Abu Dhabi Investment Fund. And not just the Abu Dhabi Investment Fund, but just like the royal family in the Emirates and their sort of their interest in various different things. And you can never really say how much like sway an individual has on a brand or a company within that portfolio. You just know that they're, that they're sort of if you follow the money all the way back, there's going to be someone involved. But it's uh It'd be interesting to see who the brand is and when it gets confirmed, but I don't think um, I don't think the PF will be too far away from it, even if they're not directly involved. Interesting. We'll um, we'll wait to see what that final deal is when it's announced, but uh, yeah, I don't think it will come as a huge surprise um, to anyone in terms of the origins of the business and the prices quoted. What's uh, what's your under the radar story then, George? As you know, um, and as any regular listener to this podcast will know that. Uh, the recent interview given by Manish Badali, who is with Blenheim Chalcott, the private equity house that is behind the Rajasthan Royals and the Rajasthan franchises across cricket. I was tempted by his recent announcement that he, he believes Test Cricket is going towards a, being an annual event and the the indication of annual centralized contracts coming from IPL franchises, I think, you know, was one that tempted me, but we have discussed that at quite some length. So instead... I was reading about Eddie Hearn's recent or the collapse of the talks between Eddie Hearn and CVC Capital Partners or Matrim Sport and CVC Capital Partners. What particularly interested me was that it seems as if Matrim had valued their business at 100 million or so more than CVC had done. And that was within the context of WWE's recent sale to Endeavor and how that might affect the valuation. So I wanted to actually ask you, beyond the obvious combat sport link, do you see any correlation between a property like Matrim Sport and something like the WWE? I guess only in that Matrim's become a very, very professional, in boxing, you know, it's always been a very professional in, in these other sports. It's brought a very professional sheen to what is sometimes quite, uh, as I think we've discussed previously on this podcast, quite an amateur and quite a sort of Wild West sport when it comes to organization and getting fights on and vested interest and all of that kind of stuff that goes with boxing so i think in that regard yes the fact that it's also got a very strong stable of fighters that it can call upon like eddie hans built a massive business out of it and built himself up into a sort of a big profile individual as well in the same way that you've got someone at the top of those wwe and ufc businesses in dana white and vince mcmahon so there's parallels there i guess where they're sort of the, the shortcomings are and why it's not obviously not going to be in the same region as, as WWE is because they don't have, there's not the sort of quite the same level of contracted stars that, and like those guarantees aren't there that you're going to be able to get the fights on in the same way. But I guess in that, in that regard, yeah, I think it probably is reasonable for them to look at themselves that way. But similarly, I mean, clearly CVC don't see the same value that 
Matchroom is placing on itself and think that it's probably not quite there yet in terms of what it's able to offer. Now, I think if Anthony Joshua had a more successful last two years, I think we're having a probably slightly different conversation because you'd have potentially one of the, the, the marquee names in heavyweight boxing, the showcase division in boxing, signed with your with your company. It, currently, he's a he's just not he's not at that level, and they don't have that fighter. So, I think that would be that would probably be the difference to, t- to tip them over the top. But yeah, I'm interested to hear whether or not you think that would some somewhat like an individual could make such a big difference. I think it undoubtedly makes a huge difference. You look back to Matchroom's partnership with DAZN, and that really was quite a, I thought at the time, quite a high-risk strategy, particularly given that um, Joshua's last fight to be broadcast on Sky was the Usyk fight. And obviously the outcome of that fight massively changed the trajectory of Joshua's career and the trajectory of of public interest in his fights. That ended up being a loss. A fairly embarrassing one of that, I think, given some of the things that happened immediately post-fight. And I think that's had a tangible effect on the matchroom valuation and on the Joshua valuation, I guess, that comes with that. There was all the talk if the Usyk fight had been one of a, a unification bout with Tyson Fury. There's no denying that that would be a, a sporting event of mega global interest and mega financial interest as well, or sponsorship interest and partnership interest. So I think Matchroom see themselves as being a a $1 billion business. CVC um, are valuing them, as reports suggest anyway, that they're valuing them at around $125 million short of that figure. And, you know, it may be a fairly convenient narrative to push, but there's undoubtedly a Joshua factor that sits within that. Yeah, no, for sure. Though I also think that's some, probably something we overlooked a little bit there is, is actually that deal with design as well. That that actually, I think, adds more value to Matchroom. It might not be as big an interest driver as it was previously, but it's still a boxing promotion which has got a global rights deal and very soon, like in a sort of a forward-thinking way of distributing its fights and reaching the audiences, which I think is attractive, for, uh, would be attractive for investors. And there were talks of other private equity houses being perhaps interested in, in Matchroom mm. and maybe we'll see one of those come back to the table with CVC out of the picture. Yeah, I think it's a KKR and Searchlight Capital that were the other firms referenced in the Sky News report. So yeah, see if they come back to the negotiating table and if they do, whether they're willing to meet the $1 billion valuation. We shall. Well, Tom, it's felt like a billion dollars talking with you today. Um, <laughs> thank thanks you, for your ti- Thank you for your time as always. <laughs> thank you, George. Uh, always a pleasure. See you next week. Cheers, guys.